You're listening to episode 1 of season 13 of the GNU World Order. This is for December 30, 2018. It's a new season, sort of a new year, except not yet. It's soon to be a new year. I've decided to start the season now with episode 1 rather than traditional my, my traditional episode 0. That way the episode numbers line up with the week numbers of the year. So I just figured that made more sense than doing a 53rd episode for 2018 and then starting with 0 on the first week of 2019. It just gets confusing. I should highlight here, however, that I have done an episode zero. It is called So You Wanna Try Linux, and it's an introduction for maybe new listeners. I'll, I, I th- I'm thinking of situating that post sort of at the very top of the GNU World Order page, so that when you go to the website to get the download, to get the RSS feed, the, the very first episode that you see is the intro to Linux, and then maybe below that, an intro to Slackware. So I have both of those episodes posted. They'll be in the feed, they'll be on the website, you can find them. If you're not a new Linux user, frankly, it's probably not something that you necessarily need to listen to. Although the intro to Slackware, I mean, if you've never tried Slackware, then by all means listen to it. I had someone on Mastodon recently, uh, I think, uh, actually I was going to say he was listening to that episode, but he might have just, it might have just been my show in general. Either way, point, point is, there are introductory episodes to a couple of different topics now, and those are going to take the slots of what traditionally I would have placed as episode zero. Although some years I would forget to do that anyway. Another addendum here to, to or a, a sort of a, a side note to all of this, is that someone uh, was saying in IRC recently that he had just discovered my show and and I was he was talking to some other people. I scrolled up and, and saw the conversation because my name got mentioned. And he was saying, hey, there's this show called GNU World Order, and it's been going on. How did I not know of this? It's been going on for 12 years. So I should I should I should be clear that I don't I don't think I, I haven't done the math. I don't know that this show has been going for 12 years. I've been doing this is my well, previously, when this IRC conversation was happening, it was the 12th season. Now, a season did not always span an entire year. This is a brand new thing where I come out with a weekly episode. It used to be much more like there'd be two episodes a month for four months, and then there'd be an episode after a three-month sort of forgetting to post something, and then and then a couple more. You know, it would, it was very, very unsteady in the past. The, this 12th season is the first time that I've been able to consistently ensure that I've released episodes on a, on a very precisely timed schedule. And and I, I think part of that is because I work from home now. I'm a remote. I, I work remote. So I don't, you know, I, I, I govern really most of my own schedule, my own, my, my daytime schedule. And it just, it, it, it has facilitated whether I'll be able to, you know, were, to, were I to get a different job, my, my life schedule changes, who knows, maybe, maybe it wouldn't happen. But I'm certainly enjoying the weekly releases, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners saying that they've enjoyed the weekly schedule as well. So that's, that's what I intend to do for this new season, season 13, which should span December 30, 2018, all the way till whatever the last day of 2019 is. So let's really quickly get some listener feedback in here. We've got one from a guy named Blizzark, who I heard from via IRC. He says, uh, just wanted to send a big thank you. Been a Slackware supporter and user for many... Dot, 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 
many years and never knew this podcast existed. Keep up the good work. I'll make my way through all of them, including your archive. Although I wrote IRC off a few years ago, I might start back up if you're on. Uh, so, yep, that's um, that's very kind. I will. I've already addressed uh, the fact that I've I haven't been qu- around quite as long as it might seem from the season numbers. Uh, that said, I should also say that this this podcast technically isn't a Slackware podcast, although I admit it does seem to be something that I talk a lot about. And certainly in the past season, I had intended, I, in my mind, I was going to take a, f- a whole six or eight episodes to talk just about the stuff on the Slackware uh, installer. Like, everything that you get on the Slackware installer. And I imagined in my, you know, my in my mind, I imagined that was going to take, like, yeah, six or eight or, you know, twelve episodes. And it turns out that it, it takes a lot longer than that to get through every single package on a Slackware installer. I'm not even out of the A set. But we are going to, we're going to restart that today, so it'll, we'll, we'll make some progress. But, um, yeah, technically this isn't a Slackware podcast, it's just a... It's a GNU Linux podcast, but there is a, a heavy bias towards Slackware, and I I don't gather that anyone minds that, because I do feel one of the strengths of Slackware is that it is generic enough, g- generally speaking, that it really does apply to most other Linux distributions. There are exceptions to that. Obviously, the package manager is different on Slackware, although certainly the discipline of compiling and installing software is useful across Linux distributions and the init system is is unique in slackware nowadays it's there's there's not well it was always unique it was a little bit of a hybrid of a bunch of different things uh, and where that will end up we don't know obviously so so yeah i think slackware is a, a good kind of safe middle ground uh, among a bunch of different linux users deep geek wrote me back and he says yes zfs can be used on a onedrive setup at the dataset level, you specify a property called copies, as in copies equals two. ZFS would then keep two copies of every block in that dataset, using them for its routine data and checksum routines. Only thing is, you th- that this can't protect you from the whole fr- from a whole drive uh, failure. As James Hamilton, who is the chief engineer for Amazon Web Services, that's AWS, once said, three is my favorite number as I can take something offline and still have replication during a failure while I'm working. And that's a good point. And so, and, and, and it's good to hear that, and I've already heard this a little bit from Vulcan Writer, but it, it is good to hear that, that yes, while the ideal is is to have a big RAID array and, and so on, you can still use it on a single drive. And that's that is useful to hear because, frankly, the ideal I think is always that you would have a a, a fancy striped RAID array. You know, like who wouldn't want that? The first time I experienced that, it was like pure magic. And that was I had this server. It was an HP server, and it was running RHEL, and one of the disks failed. And it told me that one of the disks had failed. So I went over to it. I unlatched the disk thing you know you don't have to open anything up well i think you have to like lower the front panel or something um so i did that i popped the the latch on the drive pulled it out keep in mind the the server is still running people are still using this thing took the replacement drive put it into the sled popped it back in closed up the front panel we're done just like that we're done it was amazing it was the the most magical thing i'd ever experienced so that's the ideal, obviously, right? Everyone would want that, but you can't always have like the, the 
perfect setup. And so, so we'll see. Uh, Ingrand de Rochefort um, wrote me and said, thanks a lot for the... No, he, uh, that was a reply, sorry. He says, um, uh, print on demand seems like the way to go. I was hoping to be able to play the game during the Christmas break. Is it reasonable to get it shipped to Europe fast enough? He's talking about Petition, the card game that I designed uh, both in my brain and on Emacs and then with a little bit of Python for simulation and then a bunch of different tools like Scribus and Inkscape and GIMP and all these other things. And so, yes, actually, the, the answer to this is that shipping is not fast from this place. The place that I got the print-on-demand service from, which is called thegamecrafter.com, they, they, it's not, you know, you, you put in an order and, I mean, unless you want to pay a bunch of extra money, then then they kind of put it on a shelf and they wait for a bunch of orders to come in, I guess, and then they get around to printing a bunch of, you know, it's kind of, print-on-demand is kind of famous for that. There is definitely a delay from the order to the shipping date, and then to get it all the way to either Europe or certainly New Zealand. Frankly, I don't even bother ordering this stuff for myself, because I live in New Zealand, and I know that all these printers, I did look for a local printer, and I just couldn't find one that was realistically viable. It just doesn't exist in New Zealand, I don't think. Not not on this scale, so or even in Australia. So there is a Lulu printer, Lulu.com for independent publishing, which I've I order from a fair amount. So that that's nice. Although it, it weirdly sometimes seems to ship not from Australia. It's like from England or something. It's very very unpredictable. So anyway, the the, the point is that these print on demand services tend to be either U.S. well really U.S. centric and, and getting it out of the U.S. to some other country sometimes can... It, it takes a, a while. And, and it's expensive. The shipping is not cheap. So I don't order from these places myself to get copies of these things. What I do... Well, I do order from them. I don't have them shipped to me in New Zealand. What I do is I, I literally order them, and then I have it shipped to either my parents' house in the U.S., or I have it shipped to um, one of the the offices at the place that I work. We have offices in the U.S., and so it gets shipped there. And then when I'm in the States on some business trip, or for a, you know, I call it a business trip, like a conference, a technical conference, then I swing by wherever it's been dropped off, or I have them ship it to the hotel or something, and then I pick up stuff and, and bring it back to the States. I mean, it's it's silly, but I mean, the choice is to either pay 20 or 30 or sometimes $70 in international shipping, believe it or not, or just wait till you're in the U.S. anyway, grab the things, put them in your suitcase, and fly back. It's, it, if it's not time-sensitive, it's worth saving the, the extra 70 bucks or whatever. I've ordered from um, a place that does old, yeah, old RPG print-on-demand. So specifically old Dungeons & Dragons books. Not the rule books, really, but the campaign settings and things like that. And I've uh, the, the shipping costs w were literally, w would literally have been more than the cost of the, the book. And the books aren't, aren't cheap. So that was a, it was great to be able to just have that shipped to, to my job, to, to my, my employer in the States. And then when I was there for All Things Open in October, I just picked them up. It was nice. So anyway, not everyone can do that, obviously, but I'm just, it's a fair warning. The the print-and-play version of Petition is not really, really ready right now. Um, the the initial mock-ups were not really print-worthy, and so I, I think I kind of lost track of them. I, I kind of lost sight of the idea of print-and-play once I decided, oh, I'm just going to go uh, print-on-demand. So I'm going to try to get some uh, a nice print-and-play version 
posted on GitLab. GitLab is where all the all the sources for this stuff is. And if you don't know, the show notes on the the there are no, some notes and links for each episode on gnuworldorder.info. So if I don't mention a link or if I mention it too quickly or whatever, just go to gnuworldorder.info and hopefully I've had the foresight to put the URL of some important thing into the show notes and then you can click and go there. I get into the topic that we really need to get into, which is Slackware and the package set that you get when you install Slackware, I want to address a question that kind of comes up in conversation sometimes. I, I feel like it's possibly more an implicit question rather than an explicit question, meaning I feel like there's an implication of this question rather than people actually asking it outright. And I, I don't feel like it's a matter of social propriety or, or anything like that, that people don't ask it outright. I just think a lot of people don't really think about it in these terms. So I'm going to ask what I think a lot of people hint at in one way or another. And, and certainly hinting at doesn't mean you're doing it in conversation. Maybe you're hinting at it in the way that you actually run your computer. I want to ask the question and then come up with some answers. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but come up with some answers to this question and really address for ourselves as Linux users why this, why we see this thing that we're doing, that is Linux, the operating system, as kind of a worthwhile pursuit. So the question is, why not build open source on Windows and Mac OS, for now at least, and then tackle the operating system part of that equation later? So in other words, why don't we as open source enthusiasts, or maybe that, that big word that I don't like, evangelists, is actually appropriate here, right? If you are pushing an agenda of open source, as it were, then uh, pushing an agenda, as it were, of open source, then then why not say, okay, look, our goal here is to just get a bunch of open source onto Windows and Mac. Because at that point, once we once we flood the market of Windows and Mac with open source, then getting in there and, and swapping out the operating system layer into open source could theoretically be easier. Or arguably, maybe it doesn't even matter. Maybe the OS layer doesn't even matter. Why why does anyone care that the open source or that the OS is open source? Why does that why is that even of a concern? Like, after all, you get a computer from the store, you purchase it, you open it up, and the expectation, the reasonable expectation, is that it would it, that is that it works, right? I mean, that's that's the expectation. You're buying a computer, and it it is a complete thing in and as of itself. It is a it is a self-contained. It's an appliance. It works. You don't have to go out and buy a toaster and then go to a different store and buy the heating element and install that into the toaster, right? Or or a timer. You know, it, it's a toaster. That that's what happens. So why are we treating op? Why why do we separate the operating system from the computer? 
And I, I think the advantages to this idea are, first of all, that, you know, the theoretical advantages would be that, that when you purchase a computer, it doesn't matter what you purchased. You've still, you've got this base of applications that are open source, and maybe some of them, many of them are, most of them are zero dollars to use. They're, they're free, you can use them, you can trade them, you can pass them back and forth. And that's great. So the investment is is a one-time thing. You you invest in the computer, and then you've got all the applications you could ever want to choose from on top of that, on top of the thing that you purchased from the store. And arguably, this would also increase adoption of open source because think about it: a lot of people run Windows, fewer people run Mac OS, arguably fewer still run Linux on the desktop. So almost by but by by having a Linux desktop, you are in a way you're you're dividing your 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 you're fracturing the target because now open source developers, many of them are targeting Linux. Well, no one runs Linux, so what's the use of having let's say let's say Inkscape even? What's the use of having Inkscape if if it really runs best on Linux? Probably pretty okay on Windows. I've never actually used it on there, and not so great. It's a pretty much. It's basically a hack to get it onto Mac OS. Same goes probably for for GIMP. I haven't. Keep in mind, I haven't tried a bunch of this stuff on on either Windows or Mac, either ever or in a long time. But I do know that there's. It's not trivial to get a lot of this stuff on there, especially on Mac. You have to do the whole uh, Quart Xquarts install, and and then even then you've the, the the keyboard commands don't always work the way that you think they're going to work, and so on. It's not integrated the way that you think it should be. So if open source de- developers were able to simply focus on Windows and Mac and know that people would then be able to use all of their software, and there, you know, it, it's a more unified market for for the developer, and it is a bigger market because now you've you've got people who who are on Windows and Mac, and it's it's trivial to grab this open source software or that open source software super easy to to get it and it becomes more more ubiquitous and once you've done that in theory swapping out the os should be should be pretty easy right so i and i i I say that this is an implicit question because i do feel like a lot of people when you start when you mention linux that this is an os that it's the thing that when you turn on your computer you see you know you give the the whole definition to someone who's just completely not familiar with with how computers work i i feel like the urgency to swap that out is very rare compared to the urgency to get the free photoshop replacement or the free version of Word, or you know whatever whatever thing that they they come to you looking for in the first place, and I, I I don't know about you, but I get people asking me about these sorts of things all the time. It's it's one of my main functions in life is to be asked about how they can get something for zero dollars for me to answer them and for them to walk away and ignore me. That it just unfortunately that's that's how it goes. It it's a little bit different than it used to be, which was they would ask me for advice. I would tell them that they don't want my advice, and then they would walk away unhappy. So now they walk away bewildered. And and neither of those two things are optimal. Obviously, I'm not proud of of the, that interaction. I'm just admitting to you and to myself <laughs> publicly that I just I'm not good at that sort of thing. I don't know how to deliver advice that that is as complex as you need. My advice is to change your entire operating system that's a, a big request and so if i want to get away from that 
that answer, which is my honest answer, if I want to get away from that, really the 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 the, the, the easiest, not the easiest, but a certainly a way to get away from that is to be able to say, doesn't matter what you're running, there's a bunch of open source that I can guarantee is going to work on one of those two operating systems that you are running. And then the other time I hear this come up is, is just flat out. People say, I mean, open source enthusiasts say right out, uh, Linux is great on servers and Windows is fantastic for users. Like that's, that is a phrase that I have heard multiple times in my life and, and that's it. I mean, and, and to me, it makes no sense, right? How can you be a fan of the open source process and a bunch of open source applications and, and yet not be, and yet be okay with running a non-open open, uh, operating system. That, to me, is truly difficult to, to comprehend, because that's just not me. So what about this question? Why do we, why do we need an open-source operating system, and why do we seem to think we need it right now? Why can't we wait on that? Well, the first obvious answer to that is that there's no, there is no dictatorship here. In, in the open-source world, and I've said this before, you don't, you don't go to the open-source incorporated building and ask to see the receptionist and then and say i've got some ideas i want to pitch to your to your ceo because that just doesn't exist open source is not a an organization it is not even a group it is a classification that gets applied to a bunch of different groups after the fact it's a description of of things that people happen to be doing in fact i i think that's probably one of the confusing things when people start getting involved in open source is the realization that there's no sign up form you don't join. You just you just do the stuff, and then people start saying, "Oh, you're into that open source stuff, huh?" So it, it's one of those th labels that you get through your actions rather than through a formal initiation process. So that's the obvious answer. That's the very pragmatic. It can't happen because that's just not how how open source actually functions. But there's more to it than that, and one of them is the kind of the philosophical angle, which. I think a lot of people don't understand how how this becomes a thing, and yet the whenever I think about it, it is just one of those things that I cannot deny. And I have a real issue with this concept of of how computers are becoming or have become very ubiquitous in society. It, it's something that everyone sort of needs. I mean, you know, and I say needs very hesitantly because we don't need it. None of us need computers, really. Uh, I mean, well, you know what? Some people do. Some people do. Like the, you know, medical computers, I mean, that's kind of our justification for everything, right? We say, well, look at modern science. It's only, it's only possible because of computers. And that's great. But a lot of us, most of us don't need a computer. We, we, we like it, and companies have based them, their processes around computers, so we, quote-unquote, need computers to interface with daily life things. So we, we need computers, right? We're just going to say colloquially that we need computers in the modern in the modern world. The way that we've built our society, everyone needs a computer. And and I know that functionally everyone has a computer. Like basically everyone has a computer, right? I mean I, I feel like when I first got into Linux there was this very urgent need to make sure that anyone who needed a computer could get a computer. And I used to do episodes on how we had how I'd rebuilt a computer, an old computer, and given it to this kid and it was great. And and I rebuilt a computer and gave it to this community center, you know, and I was that was kind of like my that was one one of my driving factors was making sure that people who wanted 
to access the magical fullness of computers could. And at some point, I kind of started becoming aware through a, a variety of experiences. Sometimes it was going to someone and giving them this rebuilt computer that I had lovingly constructed and put put Linux on there, and, and I'd installed all the applications that I just knew that they would expect to have, and then I'd come back three months later to check in, and it turns out, oh yeah, I had a friend come over who knows computers, quote-unquote, and they installed Windows for me, so now I'm actually, you know, and it's like, ah, that's... It's like a slap in the face, right? So at some point, you, you kind of come under this realization that everyone has a computer. Like, if you need a computer in the modern world, and you do, surprise, surprise, you've got a computer. You're going to find one. You're going to get an a, an off, an out, uh, an off, offcast, outcast? What are they called? A cast-off? Cast-off? Uh, you're going to inherit one from a friend who just upgraded. You're going you're gonna to get a computer. It's just how the world works, and the computer's going to have Windows on it. So the the problem I think that a lot of open source enthusiasts imagine of of this of this young child out in the, on the street begging for a spare change, saying all I really want to do is go into IT. Please, sir, won't you help me? That just doesn't. I don't think that that exists quite as much as we think that it does. And I don't know the numbers, but even look at even something like the Raspberry Pi, which is 35 US dollars, I think it is, geared towards school children somewhere. I, 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 again, I do not know the numbers, but if I had to guess, a lot of its sales are not from school children. A lot of its sales are from geeks who are really excited about embedded circuits and, or embedded uh, chips, system, system on chips, uh, and, and are, are really excited about the prospect of a $35 computing device, and and that's where a lot of their money probably comes from. Again, I don't know. I could be wrong. I don't know their numbers. But this er this sense of, of social justice, I guess, just it's not actually, it, it's not, it, it just doesn't seem to be a problem so much. And yet, and yet, there are people out there in the world that don't have computers. I think it is arguable whether we actually all need computers, but from experience, I know that open source has, well, truly changed my life. I mean, I know that sounds very dramatic, but it's it's actually not an exaggeration. I was I was I was failing at the, in the business that I was attempting to get into to make an honest living. I was I was running out of money, and I ended up finding open source and teaching myself enough about computing with tools that had cost me zero dollars based on information that had cost me zero dollars and from that point i was able to build a pretty successful career at least by my standards uh really leveraging nothing but open source in fact leveraging that i used nothing but open source and that's a powerful thing i mean that's there aren't all that many industries that have that available to them. Most industries in, uh, require some kind of firm, tangible investment from you. So it's kind of cool that, that computers are out there and offer that level of, of independence. And, and part of that independence, don't get me wrong, is just the fact of, of, of how many computing devices there are out there. I mean, I couldn't have, have truly done that with zero investment if if there wasn't a guarantee of going to the dumpster outside of the local, you know, generic office space, digging through their their IT trash and and digging out a computer to put Linux onto, so it, it's not. 
I'm I'm recognizing, in other words, that this whole stack doesn't actually it isn't actually all just open, free, magical, zero dollar, open source stuff. Some of it is just the uh, again offcasts of society, like just the stuff that we don't need anymore. It happens that open source can leverage that. So there's there's that angle to this. But even so, my my point is that anyone in the world who wants to who wants to earn an honest living can investigate open source if that happens to be their passion and i know that a lot of you know it's, it's not guaranteed that you're going to just fall in love with computers and be able to lead a happy fulfilled life as an it worker so i'm not saying that it will work for everyone but but nothing works for everyone that's that's kind of the diversity that is the planet earth but i on a philosophical level i would hate for someone to think what I would really like to do is to get into computers because I've heard it it's a pretty lucrative business and I can make a I can make a living off of that and I and I and I'm I have this propensity towards things that are computational you know probably might not know that terminology at, at one stage but I mean that if that's going through someone's head I would hate for them not to be able to get to get to where they want to go and no matter how you slice it proprietary operating systems aren't built for that that's not their goal. They will often say that's their goal in their marketing. They will even make it appear that that is their goal in special deals that they run, like free developer kits for students, or free multimedia software for students, or heavily reduced multimedia software for students. And they will, they will claim that they love to help developers, or they will claim that they want to change the world. They want to help people communicate with one another and so on. But obviously there's always that little caveat there. And that caveat's going to change. You know, a couple of years ago it was, well, you just can't get the updates for free or something like that, or, or you can't get the operating system for free or whatever. And and they're shaking that up a bit. They're, they're trying to make that go away because that's a crit- criticism that they're aware of. And they're like, well, if we put a $0 price tag on this, then that's going to that's going to improve things. Well, it'll change, and and it has changed, right? And that kind of segues into my next point. But the 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 change at this point is obviously that you're the product, right? I mean, like users of operating systems now are largely part of a pyramid scheme, and you're not supposed to be part of a pyramid scheme. You're you're supposed to be you're the consumer. You're supposed to wield the power by all rights. You should have the power, right? I mean, especially in if you believe in the myth of a free market or of of capitalism, then then the consumer should have all the power. That that's where this should this should be. So, it's kind of interesting now that that the operating systems out there, the closed source operating systems, are are treating consumers as as part of their income, kind of the driving force of their income, and the income isn't from consumers. Bizarrely, the consumers is from other businesses. So. I don't know where where that places all of the leverage in the power play, but it's not. I, I don't think it's with the consumers. So oh, you can argue with me on that. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's kind of my interpretation of that data. So the the next thing then is so we've got there's no dictatorship in open source, so you can't force um, people to stop caring about things. Uh, there's the philosophical angle, wanting people to have access to to code that is simply not available on closed source operating systems and then this final one i think is is security and that's a very real problem now more than ever i think a lot of people unfortunately don't really care about that just because it doesn't affect their daily lives they don't think about it and you know you can't think about all of these things all of the time we only we all we each only have so much bandwidth 
of things to care about. You know, we can't all fly every single banner for every single cause that we care about. So I, I understand that. It is very difficult for people to internalize the, the quote-unquote threat. And I put them in quotes because is it a threat? I don't know. So there's this threat about security stuff and people are looking at your information and they're tracking you and they're building databases on you and, and people kind of try to do little gentle nudges and say, well, you know, the people a long time ago didn't think it was going to be a problem, and then they woke up one day and they were outlaws, and, you know, just like little hints. People just don't get that. Some people don't believe it at all. Other people just, it's just not an urgent thing. It's not urgent enough to change your entire life and use an operating system that's open source or, or whatever. And, and you maybe you might even feel that once you have changed your entire life and used an operating system that's open source, it doesn't really matter because you don't know what code you don't know what's underneath anyway, so it could just be a it could be a marketing ploy on this open source group saying, "Hey, nobody's tracking you over here, but actually they are." Because what are you going to do? Look at the kernel code and figure it out? Probably not going to happen. A lot of people couldn't even figure out how to get the kernel code. So there's there's a big breach of kind of of do I care versus do I acknowledge that it's a problem and am I going to do anything about it? There's this kind of gap between all of that, but it's still something that's important, right? So if we're talking about why are we driving open source towards everyday adoption, then one of those, again, and it's a little bit, a little bit about, I guess, social benefit, but it is, it, it, they're, they're, computers are all over the place. And if, if we don't own the code that they're running, then we are at a considerable disadvantage. And so while it would be great to be able to say, yeah, we're going to just push a bunch of open source out, and that's the, the, the landscape of open source is going to be the application layer. Operating system isn't as important. No one's adopting it anyway. Let's, let's, let's just kind of downplay that. The operating system is important. That's an important layer to own as a people. And that's what open source is working to guarantee. And I guess the theory that Linux hasn't been adopted. I mean, I feel like most Linux users don't really buy into that concept anyway, but it does seem to be a theme that I've heard lately of just kind of like, okay, why? Why isn't it, like, where is Linux? It, everyone says it's all over the place, and yet, like, nobody knows about it, and we're not really, we, why doesn't it feel like we've won if technically we've won? And that's a tougher question, and I think it's something that we should address at some point, but not in this episode. Let's take a coffee break, and then we'll come back and look at some Slackware packages. And don't go anywhere. This applies to you even if you're not running Slackware, because these applications are available on all the Linuxes. <laughs> Okay, so we most recently left off at SmartMon Tools, which was the package that included SmartD and Smart Control. The next one in the A package set of Slackware is SplitVT, which is, you probably can guess what it is. It sounds like it's something that splits a virtual terminal, and that is exactly what SplitVT does. So if I go to a console here, just a terminal emulator of any kind, 
I'll echo hello world. There's that, just to differentiate that. And then I'm going to type in split VT. Now what happens is that my terminal window splits in two. And the reason that I did the echo hello world, and you can try this at home, is simply to show or to demonstrate, if you, if you try this, you'll see that the that the terminal output that exists in your in your window once you once you type split vt it kind of kind of doesn't go away but it's um i mean it does go away you, you lose sight of it now if you scroll up if you've got a if you've got a history uh in your terminal emulator you scroll up you'll see there's my echo hello world and then there's my split vt followed by as many blank lines as is available in in this window and then the actual sort of output of split VT. And if I resize my window at this point, it kind of doesn't scale all that well. So you you start to see some of the you start to see the borders. So it's it's a very um, sort of rigid, not very flexible split, which is fine. I'll type exit, and then it sends me to, down to the next one, and I'll type exit again. It's fine that it's a rigid split, not not very dynamic, but I feel like it's something worth pointing out, because obviously there are, as you may be thinking yourself already, there are alternatives to this that arguably do the, the same job a lot more dynamically, like uh, GNU Screen and Tmux. Those applications you can start within your shell, and then leave, and then reattach, things like that. Split doesn't isn't isn't that that's not what you would use split vt for i think for me to me i feel like split vt is sort of a quick and dirty version of gnu screen or tmux i mean it may predate both of them the man page was written back in 95 so it is an older application so maybe this was a precursor to those i'm not sure i i didn't look up the history my point is that it feels to me like it has a lot of the same kind of general functionality of a GNU screen split without all the um, extra baggage, if if you will. I mean, I, I don't. I I hope I'm not sounding discouraging to any of these applications because that's not what I intend. I'm just trying to fit all of them in together and and figure out where they sort of what what part they play. I like split VT. I mean, I just recently started using it in anticipation of this episode, so I don't have a whole lot of experience, but frankly there's not a whole lot of experience that you need. It's a pretty it's a pretty simple application and that's kind of the nice thing about it. So if you do um so when you do a split VT if, if without any options, and there are some options and you can put some options into an RC file and then it will load that automatically. And there are some good ones. There's there you know you can you can tell it as part of the command what 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 command to run in each split. The, the top and the, the bottom shell. So so maybe if you're constantly using split VT to run some kind of test, and you know that every time you run split VT, you're going to want to see H top in the bottom uh, layer, uh, you know, the bottom panel, then you can you can make that happen with, with one command, uh, just by putting, by specifying that in your RC file. But assuming you're not being that fancy, let's just say you need a split. So if you do that, then you, you can do, um, you, you're, you're the default, you're at the top, you're on the top, panel. If you hit control W, you go down to the bottom panel. So you can switch between the two panels with control W. Control O is a special uh, reserved keyboard command for for in split VT to enter command mode is what they call it. So if you hit control O for instance and then press then then you'll see a split VT command prompt. And at that point you can enter one character that stands for some kind of command. So for instance, 
if I hit R, then that repaints the the screen or the you know this the split VT screen in case there's I don't know garbage in your in your um, in your terminal. So Control O X for instance asks you or uh, locks the locks the the little screen after prompting you for a password. So if you want to unlock it, you press or you you have to type the password again to unlock. That process is a little bit weird, so you do Control O as I said, to get into your command mode, and then you press X to prompt it to, okay, I want you to lock this terminal. So then it says, enter password. Now, on my screen at least, and maybe it's just because I'm running this in console rather than URXVT, I don't know, but, or an X term, whatever, um, but it, it goes, it looks like my cursor is on a bash prompt, and so that, it feels like I'm literally, like I'm above the line asking me for a password, so it looks a bit strange. So I'm just going to A-O-E-U, return, and then it says re-enter, so A-O-E-U, screen locked, enter password. So now if I type, well, let's just do, um, no, password incorrect, type again, okay, A-O-E-U, and now I'm back in my terminal with full control. So, um, yep, that's that's that really and and there are other commands in there command o if you need command o, um control o to get into command mode then you or rather if you need control o not to get into command mode then you can hit control v as in victor and then you can hit for instance control o and it does nothing so control v escapes it says in the man page quotes, which confused me. It it it, it escapes the next character. That that's how I would say it anyway. But I guess it says it quotes the next character. Either way, it it grabs that next character that you type and and makes split VT ignore it. So if you did, for instance, Control V and then Control W, you would not end up on the next in the bottom terminal. You would end up exactly where you are because you just escaped Control W. That's really it. That is, that's all the functionality that screen, uh, Split VT has to offer. And as I've said, yeah, I think there are other applications to do all of these things quicker, better, more flexibly. I mean, I can think of three right off the top of my head. Emacs, GNU Screen, and Tmux. That said, Split VT is, is kind of nice. It's kind of convenient, to be honest. It is, it is, it's a quick split if you need it. It's super nice if you pre-program it with an RC file to do a, a, a specific set of commands. That's pretty nice. And yeah, it's it's not a bad thing to have around. My first impulse when I when I opened it was, well, this is this is duplication of, of effort. I don't need this. I'll just use screen for that, or more likely Emacs, because a lot of times that's what I'm in anyway, and that's when I'm really using split screens. So what's the point? But I've kind of I've grown fond of it in the in the past week that I've been playing around with it. So, something to look at, maybe. Something to play around with anyway. Split VT. That's about it for this episode. I think we've talked about as much as we're going to talk about. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order OG cast. This has been Klaatu, 
You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And, of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.